woke up this morning and I'm still black. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to take a minute to remember and celebrate a giant in the civil rights movement that we recently lost, John Lewis. This Medal of Freedom recipient was born in 1940 outside of Troy, Alabama, the son of sharecroppers. Inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent civil rights movement, John Lewis organized sit-in demonstrations at segregated lunch counters, volunteered to participate in the Freedom Rides, and was the youngest speaker at the 1963 March on Washington. This was a man who was beaten by mobs, arrested by police for challenging the injustice of Jim Crow laws in the segregated South. He and Hosea Williams led over 600 peaceful protesters over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on what was supposed to be a march from Selma to Montgomery. But as we all know, it's better known as Bloody Sunday. Despite being arrested more than 40 times and nearly beaten to death, he still believed in nonviolence. A true civil rights leader up until and even after his dying day. He penned an essay that he wanted published the day of his funeral. Within this essay, he spoke about how inspired he was by today's movement and how it was important for us to pick up where he left off and push forward. John Lewis said, democracy is not a state. It is an act and each generation must do its part to help build what we called the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. In this episode, we're going to discuss the Confederacy, the taking down of monuments and statues, as well as the NFL, NBA, NASCAR, and other sports leagues and how they are handling this social justice movement. One of the targets of the protests that have erupted all over the U.S. and the world, for that matter, have been Confederate statues and monuments. You have people who are very upset that these statues and monuments have been targeted. As we all know, there's a right way and a wrong way to do anything. And I'm not a fan of these Confederate statues that appear to celebrate and honor the acts of those fighting for the right to continue to enslave my ancestors. But just tearing them down, in my opinion, is not the way. If we want our actions to have the most impact, we have to do things in the quote-unquote right way. So even though these are statues that we find offensive and disrespectful, we must go about the proper channels in order to get them removed. Because we all know what happens once they're torn down, is that all of the people who want to change the narrative and divert the public's attention elsewhere will have all they need to change the discussion around what is truly going on. If we give them what they want, they will happily use it. Now, those that want to change the story and negatively change the narrative, they're saying this is out of control and protesters are going to tear down every single statue that stands. They question, you know, where will it stop? To me, it's simple. It'll stop when our voices are heard. That these monuments glorifying and elevating individuals that supported or stood for bigotry and hate have been removed or just put in a place where their entire story can be told. Some people are saying that we're trying to erase or change history by removing these Confederate statues. You can't erase or change history. It happened. The problem is that everyone does not know the truth. Everyone doesn't know what really happened. 
You can't whitewash history and just tell the part of the story that sounds good and doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. You can't erase history, but you can surely change how people view it. There are 1,500 plus Confederate memorials, over 700 statues and monuments, 10 U.S. military bases named after Confederate officers. Now we all know the United States fought against the Confederacy. The Confederacy, which at its peak consisted of 11 southern states and stood from 1861 until the spring of 1865. Yes, a total of just four years. Today, Confederates would be deemed traitors. Confederate soldiers fought to preserve their way of life, of which the cornerstone was slavery, free labor, economics. And those economics were worth so much that they were willing to go to war for them. You'll have some who will say, no, they weren't fighting for, to preserve slavery, but they were fighting for states' rights, and they were trying to preserve their independence. But right in the Confederate Constitution, there is a clause enshrining slavery forever. Slavery is mentioned in multiple states' declarations of succession. The vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, said that the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Now, something this ridiculous could only be said by a racist and white supremacist. When you think about these statues and monuments, what do they represent? They are erected to memorialize those people who we wish to honor. Now, the timing of when these statues and monuments were erected is suspect. Most people think these monuments and statues were built immediately after the Civil War. But in reality... Most of these monuments actually went up decades after the Civil War was over. Many went up in the 1900s to 1920s. And what was going on during that time? This was during a time when white politicians in the South were enacting Jim Crow laws. Another time when multiple statues and monuments were erected was in the 50s and 60s. What was going on during that time? We were going through the Civil Rights Movement. So you had the two main times that these statues and monuments were being erected coinciding with Jim Crow laws and the civil rights movement. So why were they erecting those statues and monuments? A, they were trying to honor those who they revered. B, to strike fear in the hearts of those they wanted to control. Or C, both A and B. So, These statues were to commemorate the dead, and they were meant to instill fear and send a message to those that they wanted to control. So how far have we come? Well, more recently, in 1998, a statue was erected in Nashville of Nathan Bedford Forrest. He was a Confederate general who was also a leader of the KKK. Now, this statue is on private land but it sits right along a major interstate, I-65, which is public. Should this statue, which has been defaced on many occasions, should monuments to hate be allowed to stand? Would you feel different if it was a statue of a huge middle finger? 
Would you feel different if it was a cuss word sitting there? You have these statues, these monuments to honor people who wanted to continue to enslave black people, who believed that blacks were inferior to whites. These people who were willing to fight for the right to continue to own another human being. They understood that their agricultural industry would be nothing without slaves. Black people built this country. Our blood, our sweat, our tears. That's what makes this soil so rich. Free slave labor created the wealth that has been transitioned from generation to generation to generation of white families. So if we're going to race 500 yards and you gave me a 400-yard head start, would that be fair? What are the chances that you would beat me? Hell, what are the chances that you would even come close to making it a race? Now think about a 400-year head start. How do we even things up? Good question. And I'll address this in future episodes. But nobody's saying you can change history. When you tell the whole story, however, people can understand exactly what happened in the past, giving all a clear understanding of who these people were. Some are made to appear to be heroes by the statues that honor them, but they weren't the heroes that we thought they were, or maybe they in fact were. But you can make that determination when the whole story is told. Now, just highlighting the things that you want the world to know and concealing the other side, you see the people that are arguing that if we take down these statues that we're trying to change history are the same people who don't want to tell all of the history. If you want to honor people, then have a complete conversation so we understand their strengths and their faults. If these statues are taken down and placed in a museum or monument park, and the full conversation can be had, people can decide what to believe. That does not change history, but because the people who may not look like you may be very offended by what these statues represent, maybe sitting them right in the center of town is not a great place to put the statue. The argument from a lot of these people is that my ancestors fought for the Confederacy. And they feel a kinship, a sense of honor and respect, and they hold that dear to their hearts. But just like them, there are families of those who were enslaved who feel the same way about their ancestors. The argument is that those very people enslaved our ancestors. And I don't want to have to drive down the street and look at a statue of a person who fought for the right to make me less than human to make my ancestors work for free so that they could continue to enrich their lives off of their blood, sweat, and tears. People have to seek out all of the history and be aware of the fact that sometimes you have to dig a little deeper than just the surface level. There was a movement called the Lost Cause, which is a distorted version of the Civil War that lived in the South for a long time. Pioneered by Southern historians Edward Pollard and Confederate General Jubal Early. They painted a picture as if the Confederates' defense against the North was this historic, heroic 
defense against the North. Their writings focused on three main points of the Civil War. One, the Confederate fight was heroic. Two, enslaved people were happy. And three, slavery was not the root cause of the war. These writings have been very effective in rewriting history. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, who were founded in Nashville in 1894, their goal was to preserve Confederate culture. The women who created this group came from elite families and used their position and power to spread these stories as if they were real history. They also used their position and power to pressure local governments to erect statues in high-traffic public areas, courthouses, state capitals. By the early 20th century, they had over 100,000 members and chapters all over the country. So the idea was that you had a new generation of white Southerners that had grown up and did not know the Confederacy. They wanted to do anything and everything they could to make sure they would pass the history on to new generations of Southern children. And as I mentioned earlier, that around the 1900s to 1920s is when you saw the most of these statues and monuments erected. They said they wanted to get them built before the generation of those that did fight in the Civil War died off. They tried to establish the lost cause as fact. There is a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery. President Woodrow Wilson unveiled the monument. So there is a monument to those who fought against the U.S. in a U.S. war cemetery. The UDC created textbooks and promoted the rewriting of history and made sure that school boards rejected any textbooks that did not promote their beliefs. They also monitored textbooks to make sure that Northern influence never reached the South. E. Merton Coulter wrote The History of Georgia, a self-described historian and white supremacist. This textbook was used in schools up until the 1950s. The UDC also formed the Children of the Confederacy, which was similar to an after-school club. This is where they taught the ways of the Confederacy and sought to make it personal for the children. They also taught the Confederate Catechism. They drilled this into children, and who do those very children who were taught this become? Racist, white supremacist, and segregationist. Members of the UDC were also authors. The books that they wrote were in the school system until the 1970s. It is amazing to think how this group shaped history, and they were on the losing side. Now, as I said, I'm not just for tearing down statues. I am for doing things in a fashion that we would have them done for us or to us. So going out and Just destroying and tearing things down, in my opinion, is not an effective means to get what we want. We've seen what that looks like from the other side. We know about destruction and fear and what people are willing to do in order to preserve their way of life. We've been on the receiving end of this for the centuries that we've been in this country, and it's time for change. There are a lot of people here who are supporting this movement who side with black and minority people in America who see what we've been through. 
that we have been unjustly treated who believe that it's not only time, but that it's time for real change. We have to make sure that we're taking advantage of this and doing it in a fashion that we can continue to garner the most support that we possibly can. Making this tent as big as we possibly can make it. And if we go about this in the right way, and we don't give those people who are looking to change the narrative the ability to do so, then we will finally see the change that we want in America. Now we move from the Confederacy and how it has impacted black lives still to this day, to sports leagues and how we have seen them deal with these social justice issues and how they have been impacted. From the controversy over the Confederate flag and whether to stand or kneel for the American flag, these issues are continuing to play out in the NFL, NASCAR, NBA, and professional soccer. Now, like most, I've come across a NASCAR race on TV and have stopped long enough to catch a few laps. I know some of the names that dominate and have dominated the sport, like Petty, Earnhardt, Gordon, Stewart, and Johnson. But I've never really paid a lot of attention to the sport because of the seemingly racist background. Anytime you turn on the TV, not only do you see the cars, see the large number of fans, but you always see the Confederate flag flying. Numerous flags all over the place, and if you are black, that does not scream welcome, come join us. In fact, it says the exact opposite to most. This year, we had another name dominate NASCAR. Wallace. William Darrell Wallace Jr., a.k.a. Bubba Wallace. The only full-time black driver at the highest level of NASCAR. And by now, most of you are very familiar with the story. With the movement in full swing and the desire to be a part of change, he asked NASCAR officials to ban the flying of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events. Bubba said, and I quote, No one should feel uncomfortable when they come to a NASCAR race. So the thought behind this change is that we need to remove the Confederate flag from all NASCAR events because of what it represents and how it makes some people feel. I just gave an overview of the Confederate monument and statue debate. You can add the flag to this debate as well. You have people that were upset with NASCAR's decision, and that was no surprise. People say they fly it because it represents their heritage. Well, that may be true, but if your heritage represents pain, represents people that supported slavery, and represented people that supported white supremacy, and you don't understand how that could offend someone, then there is a problem. No one is saying you should not be able to fly it on your own property. But I will say I was surprised. NASCAR complied. They saw the social unrest. They saw what was going on. And they realized that it's time that they make a move and make a change. And don't get me wrong. They also know that it's good for business. You have a whole group of people that you've not tapped into. And this might be a sport that these guys look into. And they might be able to get behind. Trust me. I'm thinking the same thing. This should have happened way sooner. But it did happen. And that's a positive thing. That's a great move that they made. The next step is to initiate real change within NASCAR. Because it's been such a long time that the symbol of hate has flown at these events 
that black-brown minorities who maybe have loved NASCAR from afar for so long still don't feel comfortable enough to actually go to a race. And then you have the issue of the noose. The noose that was hanging in Bubba Wallace's garage. One of Bubba Wallace's teammates found a noose in the garage that their team was assigned to. NASCAR brought in the FBI to investigate, which because of the climate, they had to. And they found out that the noose wasn't in fact left for Bubba Wallace. The team before them had used it as a rope to pull the garage door closed, so no big deal. They said it wasn't a hate crime. But if you ask me, the fact that somebody felt comfortable enough to fashion a noose to pull down their garage and all the other people within that garage didn't even think anything was wrong with that, that speaks to the culture of NASCAR and how comfortable those people are within that space to do something like that and not even think twice about it. So you had pushback after all of that. People saying, hey, it wasn't left for Bubba Wallace. It wasn't racist. Well, first, Bubba wasn't the one that actually found the news. It was a member of his team that brought it to NASCAR, and then NASCAR made a move. They felt they had to do the research. They had to bring in the FBI and find out exactly what had been going on. So what happens now? Do they go back to the team that was in the garage before Bubba Wallace's team and find out who actually fastened the noose and discipline them? Or do they sweep this under the rug now that they found out it wasn't left for Bubba Wallace and say that it's time to move on? I feel like the story's not over. And if we just let it die out and forget about it, the NASCAR isn't really changing. They've made some symbolic changes. They've removed the Confederate flag, or they've, they've banned the Confederate flag from flying at NASCAR events. But what real change are we seeing in NASCAR? Are they trying to bring up more African-American drivers? Are they working to be more inclusive, be more diverse? That is where we need to focus, and that is what we need to see. When these issues arise in the sports world, we can't just let it die down. Even if you're not a NASCAR fan, you're a fan of social justice. You believe that all men and women are created equal, then they should have the right to attend, be a part of, and participate in any and all events that they want to and feel welcomed at all those events. So there's a real need for change, real change, not symbolic change in NASCAR. Whether it's the NBA or the WNBA, you have members of teams on both sides who have taken exceptional stands when it comes to dealing with social injustice in America. From Trayvon Martin to Eric Garner to Jonathan Irons, Google that name and look at what Maya Moore is doing in regards to that situation. The players have been engaged and the commissioner, Adam Silver, has supported them. There was debate on whether there should even be a continuation to the season because they thought it might take focus away from what's going on right now. I think now... They see that you can do so much more with all eyes on you, the whole entire world focus on you versus sitting at home or just being a part of the groundswell and the movement. Actually taking it to a public forum enhances the message and allows even more people to see it. Using this platform to promote change and due to the fact that there's nothing else going on, you have the sports world's attention. 
there's a real opportunity to have those tough discussions during the NBA season. They have names and sayings on the back of their jerseys. Peace, say their name, Breonna Taylor, vote, education reform, and Black Lives Matter on the court. Again, I say be wary of symbolic gestures. It is a great platform to continue the discussion of what's going on and having the names and statements on the back of jerseys and on the court to help continue to promote the movement and hopefully spark those people who don't know what's going on to go online and learn a little bit more about what's actually happening. That is phenomenal. But we also have to look at how we can continue to push forward for real change. Don't let the names and the statements on the back of jerseys be the be-all and end-all, and we give the NBA a pat on the back. We can't forget about the bigger picture, what is truly going on. We cannot let things die down and just go back to business as usual. We have to take advantage of this opportunity. The NFL has been at the forefront of this controversy, from Colin Kaepernick to Donald Trump. Colin started with kneeling during the national anthem to protest police brutality and discrimination, and he faced the wrath of the NFL its owners, and the president. For his peaceful protests, he got a one-way first-class ticket out of the NFL. And I say again, he was protesting police brutality and discrimination. Not America, not the flag, not the military. Donald Trump said he was disrespecting the flag and the military. While in an effort to not do anything of the sort, Colin actually spoke to a Green Beret to find the most respectful way to show respect to the military while still protesting. The Green Beret suggested Colin kneel because that is a way to show respect. So for those who believe he was trying to be disrespectful, it is exactly the opposite. Donald Trump just tried to change the narrative and take the spotlight off the protest and push it off one of the biggest stages in America where he hoped it would just go away. But then we see George Floyd killed right in front of us just weeks after everyone became aware of Ahmaud Arbery's death and Breonna Taylor and exactly what Colin Kaepernick was protesting happens again. Only now does the NFL finally realize the error of their ways. You had a peaceful protest of discrimination and police brutality, but instead of listening, they turned a deaf ear to this way back in 2016. But then I heard people saying, oh, I don't want to see this during a football game. I just want to watch football. Essentially, I don't want to hear about your problems. Just entertain me. And if you were one of those people, ask yourself why you felt that way. Was it because you just didn't understand or it made you feel uncomfortable and you didn't want to see what was actually going on? But now... Even Roger Goodell understands. He surely understands the fact that black men make up 70% of the league and their concerns are his concerns. The fact that football has surpassed baseball as a national pastime and that this billion dollar industry doesn't run without the players. It's amazing what a few years and corporate slash public pressure will do to your perception of what's important. Everything changes when we start talking about money. And the face of the NFL, Patrick Mahomes, along with Deshaun Watson, Michael Thomas, Odell Beckham Jr., and some of the NFL's top players being a part of a video calling out the NFL also added pressure. We have to understand our power 
and what we can get done when we work together. Now, what has the NFL done? They've started a program, Inspired Change, and announced that they will donate $250 million over the next 10 years to combat racism and social injustice. It's something, but it should only be the start. We need to make sure we are holding them accountable and making sure that they are truly trying to address these issues and bring about change. But we should also be looking into the leagues themselves. How many owners, executives, head coaches, and coaches are minority? It's one thing to talk about making a change and making a difference, but it's also another thing to actually implement change and make a true difference. Major League Baseball has allowed players to have Black Lives Matter or United for Change patch on their uniform. They have lifted the cleat restrictions so that players can put social justice messages on their spikes. They will also allow players to wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt during batting practice. Baseball made these options flexible so that each player can make their own decisions. Soccer, the English Premier League, They took a knee at the beginning of their opener and replaced the names of the players with Black Lives Matter for the first 12 matches, and then they would wear a patch. MLS players also made a display of unity with the movement before their first game. They took a knee for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the time that the officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Black players in the MLS formed the Black Players for Change organization, Their goal is to have a voice in all racial matters as it relates to Major League Soccer, increase black representation in the MLS Players Association and the highest levels of MLS, and lastly, have an impact on black communities. Things are changing. I mean, we're seeing our sports leagues take a stand and allow their players to actually protest and take a stand against racial injustice. No longer are they being penalized for actually putting sayings on their cleats, wearing armbands or patches, they're actually supporting this movement. We need to make sure that we continue to put pressure on these leagues because they are nothing without our eyes, without our patronage, without our monies. We have a voice when it comes to the NFL, the NBA, NASCAR, MLS, the Premier League, tennis, bowling, cornhole, whatever sport that's out there that we're watching, we can actually affect and actually cause change. And we need to make sure that we're being thoughtful about that. Next week, we will discuss the vote, the need to get out, register, and what's happening with the DNC and the RNC. In the words of John Lewis, ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process is key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you have in the democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed you can lose it. I woke up this morning and I'm still black.